All right. Welcome to Take Note. This is our fifth episode. That We are your co-hosts, um, Taylor Reese King and Adrian Fry. We have another guest on today. This uh, is Dr. G, Dr. Ganong from Boise State University. He is the trumpet professor and the director of jazz at Boise State Music Department. Do you want to talk about yourself a little bit? Sure. Thanks sure. for having me. Having me. Um, I, uh, I've been at Boise State for about three years and um, have been really uh, excited to see what we can do with the curriculum there as far as connecting commercial music and media and jazz and performance and all those different sorts of things. Um, and, uh, and my background is, is pretty uniquely positioned in that particular direction. I have um, an undergraduate degree in ethnomusicology, uh, as well as studies in computational cognition, which is like a computer science thing. And, uh, and then I have a master's degree, and that was from UCLA. And then I have a master's degree in studio music from New York University, NYU. And, uh, and while I was there, I did lots of, uh, of recording and Broadway and studio type music. Um, and then down at University of Miami, where I did my DMA, uh, and I did that in jazz trumpet and in classical trumpet. Um, and so, and so, then uh, I was a freelancer was a for a couple of years, couple of years. and uh, then and came to Boise State. State. So, so, so excited, excited to be excited here, to be here in this community this and work community with, you with you all. Yeah, we're, uh, Adrian Fry and I are both in your uh, jazz ensemble, the uh, BSU Jazz Orchestra. And it's a lot of fun to do uh, do all that. So um, where do you yeah, see, yeah. Um, where do you see, what's my question? With the, when you, you talked about commercial music, um, what, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Where do you see commercial music being implemented into the curriculum at Boise State University? Sure, I'm gonna take sure, one, gonna take one, one switch to headphones switch. here. Sure. All right, am I coming through again? Yep. Mm -hmm. All right, perfect. So uh, in answer to your question, um, I think that Boise State's really great because we, uh, we don't yet have the, uh, the moat constructed around classical music and jazz music uh, like a lot of other schools do. And most schools who have a, a separate jazz degree and a classical degree and a music engineering degree and all these different things, um, and they have all, their, all the faculty who specialize in those areas and who, um, who want to sort of keep everything in their area because that's their area of expertise. And, uh, and at Boise State, our, our department is kind of young enough and small enough to where that hasn't quite happened yet. And so I think it's a really great opportunity to uh, integrate that into kind of all levels. Um, and at Boise State, we have a, there's a pretty strong tradition uh, across the university of certificate programs, which are, uh, which are prepackaged areas of study that uh, and you get a certificate, so it's on your transcript. And so it can be like a certificate yeah. in um, like say cybersecurity or something like that. And so I'm really interested in, uh, in creating some certificate in either music engineering or commercial music and media or something like that. Uh, and it will sort of create a, uh, a purpose-driven uh, objective that students can add on to their degree um, to kind of make it more meaningful and to, to work into those particular areas. Some of the challenges we're going to face um, are credit room in student degrees. And so you know, I, I generally encourage students to do a mm -hmm. Bachelor of Arts degree in music just because it gives them that credit room um, to truly create a liberal arts sort of degree in focus. And uh, we also kind of have a, a facilities and equipment challenge uh, at Boise State as well. We don't have a ton of equipment that's uh, designated for student use, and we don't have a ton of technology or support for said technology from the university at large. So there are some challenges, but uh, um, I'm excited to see what we can do. Yeah, and that'll really implement into the uh, composition program, um, because there are several um, composers here that really are interested in um, getting into commercial music and um, 
stuff like that. So that that's uh, interesting. That uh, I, I mean, that's really cool that you're wanting to implement that into the curriculum. And I know there's many people that would be very interested in doing uh, doing stuff like that. Absolutely. I think at the end of the day, we need to, you know, we need to be as faculty figuring out what are the skills that students need to have to be successful. And, uh, and, and how are we going to provide those sorts of things and skills for them so that they have career mobility and job skills and all sorts of things like that. Nice. So we brought you on to talk about sound engineering. So could you explain a little bit what sound engineering means? Sure. I think um, as far as, so, so typically when you think of like a sound engineer, um, it's someone who, who knows about uh, microphones and equipment um, and, uh, and software and basically someone who can make all those things work and play nicely so that someone like a musician on the other end of the microphone can simply perform the way they're supposed to perform and then the sound is captured the right way. Um, and that's sort of like your, your classical view of an engineer. But when we take a step back and we talk about the word engineer to begin with, engineers really are simply problem solvers. And they're problem solvers who have uh, analytical skills and critical thinking ability. And so you can have a kind of an engineer in almost any sort of a situation. You could even call um, a cook an engineer um, of sorts because they have to figure out, they have to problem solve um, and find a solution. And so in the, you know, in the more modern sense, or I guess in the, in the educational sense, a music engineering, I think, is a, is a discipline of music that extends, uh, that extends beyond performing but I think in the music sense includes uh, musical ability and musical training because we all, you know, we've all, we all know these jokes of the, the, the sound engineer or the sound guy who, who doesn't know what the music is supposed to sound like and turns the bass drum up all the way at the gig or something like that. And there's sort of no mm-hmm. end of, uh, there's no end of, uh, of burning on the internet for uh, the sound guy. Um, and so, you know, I think that in that sense, the sound guy is an engineer, not a music engineer. And so when we're talking about music engineering, it's not only problem solving uh, abilities and analytical skills, but it's also experience with music, uh, both like in an aesthetic form and a genre form and a performance aspect. And so music engineering, I think, is really the kind of the missing link in what it means to be a musician, um, you know, in, in the modern day, in that, you know, musicians have to play their instrument well, they have to be professional, um, they have to be very knowledgeable with style. Um, they have to be entrepreneurial, and now they have to be engineers. Um, and so I think that the the complete musician and the complete training for someone who's going to be successful in the music industry includes all those things, both being an engineer, being an artist, and being an entrepreneur. Hmm. Interesting. So how do you get started when uh, – I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, into sound engineering, but um, – for those people who are thinking about getting started um, and buying mics and buying stuff like that, what would you recommend for, say, a low budget or just maybe like one to two hundred dollars? What would you what would you want them to what, what do you think they should get to get started into sound engineering? Good question. So this may be a little bit long winded, but um, we, you know, uh, starting in this March, we've had some students go through this, and uh, and now pretty much everyone, including faculty um, who can no longer ignore technology as being a part of music education, are now experiencing sort of this um, this dilemma. And so I think you know, starting from from the very beginning of this process, um, you know, the first thing that someone who doesn't know a whole lot about what's going on and says, "Hey, I just want to plug something into my computer that works," 
Um, and that is a, you know, that's, that's, it's a pretty simple thing to do and it's pretty convenient. Um, but in that instance, we're talking about like a USB microphone. And that is a microphone that does not have anything in between it and the computer other than USB. It takes power over the USB bus. And USB microphones can be fine. Um, however, for anyone who's interested in music, I would say um, going the USB microphone route is going to ultimately not serve you well. Uh, and so when we're talking about wanting to get into this process, get into recording, get into buying hardware, um, I always like to examine you know, what is the ultimate goal and what is the ultimate reason um, why this why this purchase is going to happen. And for you know for for the people we're talking about right now, it's that this is now a part of how I'm going to learn. It's a part of how I'm going to be a professional, and it's a part of how the the professional world is going to work. And so the ultimate objective is learning how the process works so that you can be self-sufficient uh, and so that you can be knowledgeable in that process. And so with that goal in mind, um, I 10 times out of 10 recommend that the first thing that you get is an audio interface and microphone system. And so when we talk about professional studio level recording, um, it, it kind of goes in, in three, uh, there are like three aspects of hardware. We have our microphones, we have the preamplifier slash audio interface, um, which the microphone plugs into, and then we have the computer that has the software on it that the audio interface plugs into there. And so for someone just starting, I'd recommend at the very base minimum having that type of a setup because that's what you're gonna experience in the real world and that's what you're gonna have to do on a professional level. And there's lots of lots of options out there. Um, I personally recommend um, the PreSonus audio interfaces at the moment simply because they come with a complimentary license for their, um, their very full featured uh, digital audio workstation, henceforth known as DAW software. And uh, the pre, uh, PreSonus makes their lowest end audio box, USB 96, can be had for less than $100. And it comes with a $99 um, digital audio workstation package. And that uh, happens to be what I use to do all of my professional recording and editing is the professional version of that. And so um, I think that $100 is great. And that's a, a stereo interface in which you can plug in two different microphones at the same time. There's a couple that might be a little cheaper um, that have a single input. And when you're looking at these, you want to make sure that the inputs you have are XLR input, which is a particular type of cable. Um, there's a number of interfaces out there that are just for guitar players or bass players, and they only have the one TRS quarter-inch plug. Those will not power um, a regular studio recording microphone. And there's also a number of interfaces out there um, that are really trying to capitalize on, um, on, the, on the market's desire to have things that are easy and plug and play. And so there's some that are designed for like your iPad or they're designed for your phone or all these weird things. And I'm just here to tell you, you're going to plug it into your computer and you're going to get over it because that is the best way to do it. And that's how you're going to experience it in the real world. So I would say buy an audio interface for 99 bucks. So there's half of our budget. Um, and then it comes with the recording software and you presumably already have a computer. Otherwise, how would you watch this podcast? And um, so then we have $100 to deal with and you're probably going to spend, you know, 20 or 30 bucks on a microphone stand and a microphone cable. And then, uh, and then you have the rest of that money left over to, to work with a microphone. And then here's where you want to kind of be a little bit judicious and say, what am I recording? Is it going to mostly be voice? Um, am I a singer? Is it just for podcasting? Uh, or do I play an instrument that has sort of an area sound, um, like, a, you know, like a woodwind instrument, for example? Or do I play something that's very directional, like a brass instrument? Um, or do I play a drum, a drum set or something like that? And that will kind of all influence the type of microphone that you would buy. Um, and by and large, I recommend most people start by getting a condenser microphone because um, uh, kind of like what Taylor's got in front of him right now. And uh, because they'll, that you can dial up that sensitivity and can capture a whole space 
or you can turn the gain down quite a bit and you can record right on it and it'll be fairly clear. Um, for directional instruments, ribbon microphones are very popular and I love uh, playing uh, into a ribbon microphone on trumpet, um, but you're gonna deal with different sorts of issues and color sensitivities and things like that, depending on how you record. And then we also have dynamic microphones like I'm talking into right now. Um, and they're great because I can go here and you can't hear a whole lot of what's going on out there, but when I'm right up on it, it gives me a nice warm sound. Um, and, uh, and they're really great for voice, and this can also work live, too. I know many pros who will travel to the gig with this exact microphone um, and just swap it out on the stand and play their flute or whatever into it. All right. So um, what about getting into higher budget stuff? After you've gotten the baseline audio interface, mic uh, condenser microphone, usually, um, and it depends on what you're doing, and we'll, we'll talk about later on in the podcast about how to mic different instruments and stuff. Um, after you've got that baseline, where do you go from there? Good question. Well, so if you followed my recommendation and got the interface that has two XLR inputs, um, then you're already in business to have two microphones if you want. And, uh, mm -hmm. and there's kind of, and, and everything I'm kind of talking about now is sort of builds off of itself. If you, if you're one of those who bought a USB microphone, then you're basically starting at zero right now, as far as investment, because, you know, unless you bought um, there's only, I think there's one or two USB microphones out there that have XLR inputs in them also, but they're hideously expensive. <clears throat> and so, um, assuming you already have this baseline gear, the next thing that you would want to do, I would say is buy another of the same exact microphone that you've got already so that they're identical. Um, and this will serve a couple of purposes. The, the first of which is that you can set them up to record an ensemble in stereo. And as long as they're not too close together, you're not going to run into a unmatched microphone stereo issue. Um, and also having two. What does that mean? So that means if you have if you have two microphones, so a microphone is an element that responds to vibrations. And if mm -hmm. you um, mm -hmm. and because of manufacturing processes, those elements all have slightly different response um, when they're manufactured. Even you know, not enough for the ear to really tell, but enough for science to tell. And so if you have those microphones set up in a, in a configuration where they're recording a stereo sound, um, so like let's say like an XY configuration or something like that, then there will be a, a particular space in that spectrum where the sound they record is just slightly off from each other, even though it's the same sound. And that causes a, a distortion in the mid-range, and it will kind of make it sound like you're playing through a fish tank um, in a certain way. Oh, so that's oh. what that is. I've always been that's wondering cool. what that is. That's cool. All right. Cool. Yeah. And so the way you get around that is you buy microphones as matched pairs. Um, and so then at the factory, they examine the elements and they find ones that have the same exact frequency response in the middle. Um, and you buy them as a matched pair. So I have a set of Rode M5 uh, small diaphragm condensers that I'll record like drum overheads with, or I'll put them on my Zoom in stereo configuration to record high quality audio with video at the same time. And uh, I bought those as a matched pair. Um, and so a matched pair is a good thing to get. Um, so another way you could go if you didn't want to buy the same exact microphone, if you want to do experiment more and you're not really that interested in recording ensembles, um, is to get a different uh, type or style of microphone. And so like, you know, you could get a dynamic microphone or what this one is, is a dynamic cardioid. Um, but you could get one of these if you specifically want something that you can talk into that will make your voice sound like you're on NPR. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and this, yeah, this is like right ElectroVoice RE320. And uh, this is a great microphone for that. I also love this microphone on flugelhorn. Um, and it does some really interesting things there. You can also take it on stage. So if I was to play a gig, well, if I was playing a wedding band gig, I'd probably take my SM57 because it's cheaper and more robust. Um, but if I was playing like a, you know, a jazz gig on stage or something like that, I would probably bring this microphone with me. Um, you could also go for <clears throat> a ribbon microphone. 
and a ribbon microphone works differently than a condenser. Um, and it, it it's figure eight, which means, yep, which means it will capture all the sound equally in front and behind, but nothing to the sides. And so that's really great for recording what the room sounds like and what the instrument sounds like. And so for our brass players who were used to hearing things in a hall and from a distance and where the room sound is very is 80% of how we perceive our idols to sound is the sound that they sound like in a room. Um, we're going to like <clears throat> having a ribbon microphone. And if you put a little bit of a sound baffle behind a ribbon microphone, or you're in a fairly dead space or a room, then it will get a really clean, nice signal of a directional instrument. It can also handle really high sound levels. So if you play like trumpet, where occasionally, um, you know, the sound pressure level will spike really high, it can be really great for that. Um, mm -hmm. Ribbon microphones are more delicate and um, they're less sensitive, which means you need to use more gain on your interface unless you have a mic activator or an active ribbon microphone that takes power and it can change its sensitivity level. Um, so those are just kind of two other options you could get to get another microphone. Um, now you said you said higher end. So if we're talking higher end stuff, you know, I, I think entry level microphones, you're talking $100 is how much a microphone will cost at the entry level, one that's worth buying. Um, and once we get to sort of like the next level up, we're looking at microphones that cost like $250 to $350. I would say is kind of like the next area, um, and uh, and it's not really worth buying something that's like less than two hundred fifty bucks. You might as well stick at the hundred dollar level. Um, but up, you know, at the two fifty or higher level, um, the RE three twenty lives there if you find it used. Normally, I think it's a three hundred fifty dollar mic. Um, and there's a, a number of other really great microphones that you can buy um, in that area, like the uh, the blue the Bluebird by Blue is a really great high end condenser microphone that um, MSRP is at like three hundred bucks. You should get it for less than that. Um, and there's just, there's a number of other companies that make great microphones. AKG makes their, their 214, which is like their 414, but has fewer switches on it. Um, and that can be great. Or you can uh, go and grab yourself a stereo pair of condensers. Or one of my favorite stereo pairs are the Cascade Fatheads. Um, and that stereo pair will probably run you a thousand bucks to buy both of them. Um, but uh, a matched stereo pair can be really great um, for certain applications. But there are, you know, some industry standard microphones for things. So if we're, if we're talking about like a singer, the Rode NT1A is pretty legendary as a vocal microphone. Um, and if we're talking about like a woodwind instrument, um, any of the Neumann TLM series are going to be really great. Um, and the, and of course the the Blue Bluebird in that area. And then if we're talking trumpet, um, ribbon microphones are great. Uh, Chinese company Golden Age makes some really good ribbon microphone knockoffs, uh, like the Mark III I used to have. That's active. Um, and then ribbon microphones really go all the way up to break the bank up to like, you know, the Royer 122, which costs $3,000. Um, or I have a blue, <laughs> a blue woodpecker that's discontinued, but it's an active ribbon microphone. Um, that's normally a $1,200 mic that I got for not $1,200. <laughs> right on, right on. And you also want to think about preamps. Once you get above like the three or $400 range, having a different preamp than the one that's built into your audio interface can also color the sound. Um, and you can get like a tube preamp or preamps get, can be more expensive than microphones by far. And so the game just widens once you get up there. Um, but you don't really need to spend a ton of money to get really good high quality sound either. Mm -hmm. So I have a quick question. Well, clarification. So when you say figure eight versus Polaroid, for those people who are interested in like mathematics, um, those are like polar functions that you learn in trigonometry and stuff. So you have uh, just the Cartesian graph, which is XY coordinate plane, but then you have the polar graph, which is based on radians. So the card, uh, the, uh, cardioid, um, basically looks like a heart that is rounded at the bottom. So it means it can't record from the back, but it can record, um, better 
as you get towards the front. Um, would that be accurate? Yeah, there's yeah, there's a bunch of different kinds of patterns that microphones will have, um, and just by function of the way they're built, ribbon microphones are figure eight. Um, mm -hmm. And that's with, another polar function. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, but with condenser microphones, um, they they oftentimes can have multiple different types of patterns that you can select. Um, but like a standard condenser microphone microphone will be cardioid, which means it's like pretty evenly sensitive all the way out to like 90 degrees right and left, and then it drops mm -hmm. off significantly in the back. Um, there's also like supercardioid or hypercardioid, where it's like a shotgun mic where it's really sensitive on the front and drops off dramatically as you get towards the sides. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also like uh, omnidirectional, which is um, which is where it's equal 360 degrees. Um, and then there's also bidirectional, which is this basically the same as figure eight. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, and, they help. and they all they they address this idea we talk of like of stereo image. So you know, look at yourself in the mirror, or look at me, and you can see I got ears. And uh, and our ears are positioned on particular <laughs> parts of our head, and we hear in stereo. And so when a sound comes to us, we're perceiving that sound is coming from a particular space, and we call that the stereo image. And that's how like I could close my eyes and watch the orchestra and know that the basses are on a, are on the right on my right side of the stage, um, because I'm hearing them there in the stereo image. And so when we mm -hmm. record, um, we uh, and especially in the mixing process, we need to pay attention to what the stereo image looks like, or the or it can sound artificial. Or if all the sounds are coming from one place in the stereo image, it can be very muddy. And so mm -hmm. um, stereo microphone techniques are designed to kind of mimic that stereo image to capture it accurately. And using the different types of patterns on microphones, we can both take advantage of how the room sounds, capturing the instrument as well as possible, but also capturing it in a, in a, a natural way that doesn't sound unnatural. Like if you were to apply weird types of reverbs or echoes in post-production, you can make it sound unnatural. And basically what that means is that it's not how our ears are used to hearing things. And so we, we hear it as not natural. Hmm. So when you're recording multi-track things, so multi-track basically means one instrument at a time, and then you're layering them on top of each other. When you're recording that way, when you add on, um, when, when you pan, how uh, that, that gives you that stereo image that you're talking about, right? So how do you think about panning? And like, what what angles do you think about when you're doing different ensembles and stuff? Um, I know that when I've when I've done my own uh, uh, multi-track stuff, I don't like hearing stuff all 100% this way and 100% that way, and then going in, or else you sound like the uh, um, like you're standing on the podium. But you're normally in the audience, so you hear a little bit from one side and a lot of it more from the other. So what angles, or what degrees, or however you want to. Uh, like I don't know if it's on percentages or um, how panning works the um, the um, units, but how do you personally um, go by doing that in your own DAW in Studio One? Sure, um, I think a lot of it depends on um, on the on the type of ensemble that you're recording, um, and mm -hmm. it also kind of depends on the type of product that you're going for. So, like, let's say you know, let's say I'm recording um, a jazz band, a jazz ensemble. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm doing this multi-track and, uh, you know, and just as a, just, a, just before we sell this, all the instruments are, rec are recorded in mono. And so that's something that, you know, that I think that we don't necessarily always realize, but if you're recording into a single microphone, it's mono. And if you're a single instrument, then your, your recording should be in mono. And oftentimes I'll have, I'll do projects and people will send me stereo stems of what they do. And in that case, it's just like a mono signal that's doubled half right and half left kind of a thing. But really, we're talking about a bunch of mono signals. The only thing that's not a mono signal um, when you're recording a jazz band multi-track is going to be your drums and your piano. 
um, and everything else is going to basically be recorded mono. So um, why the I'm, piano? Because we typically record the piano with two microphones, a high and a low. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah, and, and also because the piano is a bunch of strings acoustically, the sound will come out and will be perceived as stereo because it's not a, a directional. If you're recording an electric keyboard, now we're talking mono sound. Speakers. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could also just uh, record that as MIDI, though, too, if you're recording an electric keyboard. Yep, which is, yeah, which is what I recommend. But it yeah. is. Oh, more, really? Right. Well, it, it adds more flexibility, but it also adds more time later. Um, I sure. had a, a teacher of mine, Tamir Hendelman, down at UCLA. And uh, when he recorded his album, he did it. He recorded MIDI uh, because then he sent it out to his favorite piano that they had over in Berlin, as well as his other favorite piano that was like down in Brazil. And they recorded it through those two pianos and he mixed them together. What album is that? Uh, I forget what it's called, but I know he recorded a contrafact of. Um, of La Scala de Seta on it because uh, it's a big oboe excerpt. Um, but Tamir, I think it's like a piano on a beach is on the cover of that album, I think. Um, what was his name again? Tamir, T-A-M-I-R, Hendelman. And he's great. Um, but getting back to kind of your panning question here. So let's sure. say we have our jazz ensemble and I say, okay, what does a jazz ensemble look like if I'm sitting in the audience? Well, there is the rhythm section over on the left the trumpets are in the back, and then the trombones, and then the, the saxophones. And so what I would do is when I'm panning, the very first thing I would do is I would position the pan so that in my stereo image, everyone is where they would be on stage. And I would start there. Um, and generally, generally speaking, what I find is that I need to make sure that everyone is not quite in the same spot. Like if the lead trumpet is behind the lead trombone, um, I need to make sure that they're not 100% in the same spot, just a little bit off, because it makes it natural. Um, mm. And, mm -hmm. uh, and one side effect of having things be in the same place in the stereo image is that their their sounds it sounds more muddy that way because we are perceiving them as all coming from the same spot. It would be like if you put four trumpet players on each other's shoulders and had them play at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I would start there. And from then on out, I would basically just listen to it and use my musical intuition. And this is the part of, you know, we're talking about engineering versus music engineering. The engineer would say, I'm going to put them where they're supposed to be, and that's it. Um, but the music engineer would put them where they're supposed to be and then listen and say, does this sound right? Mm -hmm. And that's the big difference there. As far as mixing goes, I always mix everything in mono first. Um, mono, one place, no, no panning, no stereo image. And I go through each instrument and make sure that the instruments sound the way that I want them to sound, the sections sound the, the right way I want them to sound. And then I put them all together and say, okay, this is good mono. And then I'll blow it up into stereo and then do the pants. And then usually there'll be more tweaks after then but it's a general rule of thumb to mix in mono. All right. So um, when, what reverbs do you like to work? Like I, I've been, I've been doing some stuff with the podcast editing. And um, when I was recording with my friend, Barrett Moffitt with the Avengers thing, we forgot to add on reverb and it sounded really dry and kind of disgusting. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, thank you for agreeing with that, Adrian. That's very yeah. Funny. I reverbs no, like I, it's the spice, you know. It's like yeah. the it's the it's the syrup on top of the pancakes. Like you mm -hmm. have to have it. So, what do you do to um get that sound? I mean, what what do you what do you like to have? Mm -hmm. So, re reverb is uh it's kind of a hot topic in the mixing and recording community. And, uh, you know, I've, I've recently, I'm in the middle of a bunch of projects with the Brass Institutes of Virginia, and we're releasing a premiere performance every Friday that's totally multi-tracked. Um, 
And one of the guys in our group who is doing all this mixing, he doesn't like to use quite as much reverb as I do. Um, and so it's all kind of personal preference. But at the end of the day, reverb, you know, we're thinking, we're thinking back to being a music engineer, not a regular engineer. And so mm -hmm. um, when, we're, when we're thinking about music, it's about how we're perceiving its sounds and whether or not it sounds natural. Um, and, uh, and those are two things that reverb can help achieve because whenever you listen to music, it's always going to be in a space. And the space is always going to be a big part about your experience with how music is with how the music sounds. Uh, and so reverb plays a, an essential role in making it sound like it's in a space. Uh, because if if there were no spaces and everything was direct, then it would sound like your Avengers video. Everyone would. And the reason why, you know, and, and if you were to take, you know, the best sounding musician on your instrument ever and put them in a and put them in your room on your microphone and recorded it and put them on the Avengers soundtrack, they would sound just as bad to our ear because there's no reverb, there's no space. And so I look at reverb as a way of designing the space that I want the ensemble to be in. Um, but it's also something that, you know, you want to you try it on a bunch of different speakers when it's done and see what it sounds like because it's easy to overdo reverb. Um, and, uh, but it's also can be a very nice subtle effect sometimes. And so I'll usually add my reverb after I'm done changing the way things sound. And again, there'll be, there's always a, a round of tweaking once you add some kind of a, an effect. But I'll usually start with some kind of a reverb plugin um, that has some natural presets. And in fact, there's one, it's called uh, Room, Room Verb that's built in. I think it's a Presonus plugin called Room Verb. Yeah. And I like that one because it gives you, it allows you to adjust the parameters of your space um, in addition to like the more technical parameters of dry versus wet versus release versus attack. And yeah, so, so like yeah, what are all of those sets? So you have wet versus dry uh, sound. You have pre, um, pre, what is that called? The pre... Reverb. I don't know what it's. Uh, I'm I'm going right off of my memory. I have, to, I have to open it. But there's a there's a bunch of settings on uh on the room verb or mm -hmm. reverb in general. What does each one do? What is mix? What is size? What is length? Width? What does that do to the sound? Sure. Well, so there you know there's there's algorithms built into the way the sound is processed that um that are according to the engineer who built the plugin analogous to those aspects and so. Um, you know, for if you're messing with uh, with the room height and width and length, then you're those are effectively the parameters of your space. And so, if you were to make it really long but not change anything else, then it'd be like playing into a tunnel. Uh, and if you made it really tall and really long, it'd be like playing in a cathedral. And if you made it really, uh, if you made all the parameters big, it'd be like playing in an arena. Um, and so, you know, the the idea is that by you can, you know, if, if you want to play in the blue note you know exactly how, you know, you can look at the plants and see how how far the back wall is and what the dimensions are in the blue note and theoretically produce an acoustic space that is similar in size. Um, and a lot of times sound engineers will measure the distance that their microphones are from each other in a space for when they want to reproduce a recording. In fact, the Boise Baroque Orchestra just, uh, just released a concert recording that I helped produce. And the sound engineer who we had was, uh, was measuring distances from all his microphones and from the podium so that he could produce the most accurate stereo image possible and the most accurate reproduction of the space as possible. Um, and mm -hmm. that was a live situation. So there was less, Reverb had less to do with it, but Reverb certainly did, um, did have a part in that as well. But so moving on, we have, you know, there's two main things that we're talking about for a Reverb beyond the room size, and that's the dryness and wetness. And if you were to change the room mm -hmm. size, it automatically will change the dryness and the wetness based on how a room of that size would be in terms of dryness and wetness, but you can change the dryness and wetness yourself. So these, these things kind of all interact together. What do those two terms mean? I've heard them so many times and seen them so many times. 
Right. Um, I don't 100% fully understand it. What does that mean in terms of audio? Sure. Well, I'm probably not gonna give you, I probably won't give you the scientific answer, um, <laughs> but from a, from, a, from a music engineer point of view, rather than an engineer point of view, sure. um, wet, you know, dryness and wetness are an aesthetic of how something reverberates. And mm -hmm. so if we're talking about like, like, let's say you're in, let me find a good example. Like, uh, okay, let's say like you're in a gymnasium, like a gym, like a high school gym, right? And you clap and you hear the echo, but there's all sorts of other sound going on within that echo. That's a very wet sound. Um, you know, almost. Fish Where does tank that other sound room. come from? And that other sound just comes, it comes from the, the, both the geometry of the room and the, and the reflective nature of the walls and surfaces mm -hmm. in that room. And so it's possible to have a really, really, um, to have a, a really dry reverb sound in which there's not as much um, reflection back and forth, um, but there, it's a still a big space. It's like a classic, a classic example that would be like a big scoring stage, like a movie scoring stage would have, would have a, a fair amount of reverb, but it would be very dry. Uh, and this so is how do you control that? By, the, by surface. So you see these things I got on my walls and the things you got on your walls? Yeah, right? we're controlling the dryness <laughs> and the wetness of our space with those because we can't make our walls any smaller or bigger. So we're changing how reflective, how much the sound reflects off the walls. Mm -hmm. And by reducing that reflection, we're making it drier. So I guess, yeah, reflection is wetness. We are so sorry about earlier. My sound engine was giving feedback to Dr. G and Adrian. So he was being repeated and then fluctuated. It was really bad. So we have the problem fixed. So anyway, thank you for listening. Enjoy. different types of acoustic foam um so you have bass traps you have uh well just general acoustic foam and then there's one other that i can't remember and have to look up um what what does each one of those do bass traps you want to have in your corners but what do they what do those do so going back going into engine more of engineering mode and less of music mode now um when we we're talking about doing sound treatment in a room um our goal when we treat a room well it depends, but um, our goal, let's say, let's say you're setting up your room like I have here so that I can record music uh, directionally into my microphone, um, being close mic'd. Then my mm -hmm. goal in sound treating my room is to make it dry. And the reason why my goal is to make it dry is that if it's very dry, then when I have my plugins and do things later on, I can have more control over changing the way my space sounds. And if it's wet, then there's less that I can do later on. Um, and so, when I think about what makes a room wet, the first thing is the, re the reflectivity of the surfaces in the room. And so you can see, you know, in my particular room, I have a bunch of flat walls and there's no carpet on the walls because this is not the seventies. Um, and, but my floor happens to be carpet, which is fine. And my ceiling is also square. So there's no, everything is basically a right angle in my room, um, which is not good because things that are, things that are very, uh, that are like parallel and perpendicular will reflect sound back and forth like crazy. And surfaces that are smooth and hard, like glass, for example, um, will also uh, have things go back and forth much more quickly. 
And so we're using our knowledge of acoustics, we know that lower sounds um, have different wavelengths and those wavelengths allow lower sounds to travel through surfaces um, more easily than higher pitched sounds. And so Taylor mentioned bass traps. And so bass traps are, is acoustic foam designed specifically to absorb those lower frequency sounds so that they don't travel quite as far. Um, and generally we wanna put those in the corners because the bigger sounds will tend to reflect and congregate in those particular corners. Um, and again, corners are a good place to capture a sound that, re that reflects. And if we think about like a round space, like let's say your, your ceiling was round. Like when I went to, in high school at Interlochen, we had these rotundas that the classes were in and there was a center space in each of those rotundas um, with like chairs you could sit and study, um, but the ceiling was domed. And so you could stand on one side and whisper and someone directly on the other side could hear you like you were yelling at them. And there's actually some really cool science about that. Yep. Like if it's the, depending on the arc, if it's like a parabolic arc versus an actual like circular arc yep. versus different polar functions, it's exactly. actually really cool, the acoustics yep. of it. And they call it the whispering gallery effect. Um, huh. But yeah, but so there's all, there's all sorts of different phenomena that can happen in rooms and spaces. And so switching back into um, music engineer mode from engineer mode, I'll go into a space and I'll, I'll clap or like I can make a loud clicking sound with my tongue. Um, and I'll do, you know, it's, it's, I can pretty quickly figure out what a room is going to be like by doing that because you make a loud percussive sound and you hear how it interacts in the space. Um, mm -hmm. And the more experienced you are with recording in spaces and things like that, you can figure out pretty quickly what they're going to be. Now over in engineering land, um, you can hire an acoustician at a phenomenal, for a phenomenal amount of money to come in with special microphones and measure your space scientifically and mathematically and make it correct. Um, which is great and probably the best thing to do, but that person's an engineer and I'm a music engineer and I could probably get pretty darn close using just my ears. Um, and so that's, you know, the music in engineering we're talking about here. And in fact, First Presbyterian Church over in Boise, they hired an acoustician last year and redid the entire space specifically for the Boise Baroque Orchestra. And it sounds fantastic. It's a great place for the Baroque to play in. Um, but they hired someone to do the math for them. Um, hmm. And that was their job. But anyways, yeah, go ahead. Sweet. Uh, I actually have a question as well. Um, it's from uh, one of our viewers in the chat. Uh, would you need more uh, bass traps depending on the type of instrument? Like, let's say trumpet versus tuba. Would you need um, more for a tuba to get that kind of a dry sound you're going for, the sound you're going for in general? Um, good question. I, it really just depends on your space. Um, it's, you know, it's it's possible that you don't need any bass traps. Let's mm. say, you know, in my, in my office here, I have carpet on the floors and I have, you know, and I don't have any really unbroken flat spaces on my walls that are not broken up. And so, you know, depending upon how I'm micing up the tuba, um, you know, there's probably a way for me to mic the tuba in my room for it to sound exactly like it needs to sound. Mm. Uh, I built my room to have a little bit of feedback because I practice in here also, and I don't just record. And mm -hmm. so I take that into account when I set up how I'm recording. Um, but yeah, I would say that there is no room that doesn't need sound treatment of some kind. Um, and depending upon how your room is, it's going to need more or less. And my, you know, my biggest suggestion, um, short of reading an acoustic textbook, is to be a musician, is use the musician <laughs> side of music engineering and mm -hmm. examine your space, play, hear, think critically and say, you know, what am I, when I play, do I hear more than just me? And, mm -hmm. you know, especially in like the classical music world, and even more especially in the classical brass music world, um, we're so fixated on how, uh, on how our, our instrument is supposed to sound in a space. And so it's like my idol, Bud Herseth, Chicago Symphony, 80% of what I idolize is the room that he's playing in, and 20% is him. 
And if Bud Herseth came over to my studio right now, um, if he could, and played into my microphone, um, there are probably stuff about that that I say, I don't like that. That's not Bud. Mm. Okay, yeah. So you're saying it's more of like the the general environment than the actual like yeah. instrument, the musician themselves. All right, that's cool. And the sound panels are so cheap. You know, 25 bucks, you can, you can outfit a, a moderately sized room. Hopefully you have carpet. If you don't, we'll talk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, buy rugs, lots yeah. of rugs. <laughs> you can, I mean, you can also get isolation things. Like there's things you can mount on your mic stand that will put like behind the microphone. Like, in fact, I have one that I'll sometimes put on my ribbon microphone to make it as dead as possible, or I'll put it on, um, I'll even put it on uh, a ribbon microphone if I'm going to mic like an amp or something and it will just encapsulate the back of it. And that's, let's just pretend this is the front of the microphone, even though this is, and it's on the back and it will absorb all the sound around behind it and make it as dead as possible. So that's another option too. Um, tube is great. It's kind of omnidirectional to begin with. And so yeah. I'll usually put a microphone like, you know, six, six feet up and like a couple feet in front of the tuba player is usually where I'll start. And then if I'm hearing some weird room things, I'll maybe get it closer. Um, and also for tuba, I would probably gravitate to a condenser because of its omnidirectionalness or maybe even a dynamic. I mean, this, this is a legendary microphone for string bass um, and bass drum too. So, uh, sorry, you couldn't hear me. Um, what, um, what instruments need, uh, so how do you mic different instruments? So um, I played saxophone. I'm trying to learn the best way. I'm also working with a trombone player. I'm learning how to play flute, learning how to play clarinet, and also soprano saxophone, the uh, sound goes down more than out, like unlike the alto saxophone and tenor saxophone. So how do you um, mic each different instrument mono versus mm -hmm. stereo? What mics do you use? So um, could you talk about that for a few minutes? Yeah, good question. So you know, outside of, of the type of microphone you would select, which we kind of already talked about a little bit, and honestly, you can get away with almost any type of microphone. Um, and still get a pretty good recording. Uh, the first thing that you want to think about when you're recording an instrument is, you know, what are what are the most important aspects of what makes this instrument sound unique, and also, uh, what you know, what does it sound like um, when I'm in different places around the clock of an instrument playing. So, talking about a trumpet, for example, and I would say that the most important things about trumpet are the attack, um, and that's and the color change in volume and register that the trumpet can get if it wants. And so I want to make sure that I can clearly record uh, the differences in attack and the differences in color with volume. And so that's going to influence my microphone selection. Uh, and now talking about a trumpet, if I'm standing right in front of the trumpet, I want earplugs. Um, if I'm standing even 20 degrees to the side of the trumpet, the, the, the sound pressure level drops off considerably. And the farther around and away from where the bell is on a trumpet, the sound gets more and more different. And I'm hearing more and more of the room and less and less of the direct sound. Uh, mm -hmm. And so what that's going to tell me is that in order to have the clearest sound possible on a trumpet, I want to be in like the front 10 degrees with the microphone for sure, um, because otherwise I'm not, I'm going to miss some of that clarity and the attack. Uh, and I know that because there are some huge changes that can happen in color and timbre of the sound, depending upon the volume, I want a microphone that's going to respond evenly in low and in both low and high volumes. And so for me, that's going to be a dynamic microphone or a ribbon microphone. Um, in general. Mm -hmm. Now, if I'm talking about recording uh, a trumpet solo or trumpet excerpts or something like that, then we're talking about moving the microphone a little bit farther away because, you know, one other thing I'm going to add into what makes a trumpet unique in that situation is how it sounds in the space. And so I don't want a sound that's as direct. 
Now, some negative things that come out of a trumpet are air sounds, mouth sounds, button sounds, and slide sounds, clicking from slides moving in and out. And so ways that we can change that is by uh, changing the axis of the microphone. And so like, let's say we have a figure eight microphone, on axis would be directly in the microphone, and off axis would be slightly away from the axis. And so the way that I typically record trumpet into a ribbon microphone is let's say, oops, let's say this is a ribbon microphone here. Um, I'll have my trumpet bell be like here. So the sound is actually going like that. Not so like could that. you describe what you're doing? Um, because this is a podcast. Nobody's watching the video. Oh, no one's watching. Okay. Off so the uh, off the recording. Got it. So, yeah. uh, so, let's say, <laughs> yeah, so let's say I have my figure eight microphone, which records uh, in the front and in the back and not on the sides. And I have my trumpet. So I could point, um, I could be, you know, three inches away from that microphone and pointing straight at the microphone. And that's what we would call mm -hmm. on axis and close. So close on axis. Uh, and so something that I will oftentimes do to still capture the color of the sound and, and the breadth of the attack, but not quite have the sound be so direct is I'll do what we call off axis. And so that means basically any pointing anywhere except for directly at the microphone. And I know that, you know, if I was to use a Royer 122 or 121, um, I would still be basically pointed at the microphone, but I would just maybe be like three inches to the left or the right kind of a thing. And so what that will do is it's still going to, I'm still kind of within that cone of picking up the direct sound, but it's not quite as direct. Um, and I know with my woodpecker microphone that I have is that I'm probably a foot, a foot off axis. Um, and it's probably pointing 30 degrees to my left. So like, the, the front of the microphone is probably pointing at my left shoulder if the microphone is to my right. Um, and I'm basically playing straight. And so, and if I have that mm -hmm. there in my particular room with the gain setting that I've figured out works well, then I get a really nice, clear, clean sound with no extraneous mouth or air noises um, and still being fairly dry within my space. So, so go ahead. does that work with all um, front directional um, instruments? Uh, brass instruments, so like flugelhorn and trombone and, uh, say, marching euphonium or mellophone, stuff like that, um, which aren't going to be recorded in studio very much. But would they? Uh, does that work well with those instruments? Yeah, by and large, anything, anything that's uh, anything that is a uh, an open-ended tube instrument mm -hmm. um, is gonna is gonna respond really well to on versus off axis, and you're gonna want your microphone to be pretty close to the axis where the sound is coming from. Um, and this is for recording, this is for studio recording, for getting a clean, direct signal that you can change later. Um, and depending upon the type of microphone you use, that can change. So like I said, I like to play flugelhorn on my RE320, which is a dynamic microphone. Uh -huh. And so it is much, much less responsive to being off axis because it's dynamic. So, you know, I'm talking right on the microphone. And if I move three inches to the right, it sounds like this. And if I move three inches to the left, it sounds like that. Whereas if mm -hmm. I did that to my ribbon microphone, it would probably be a difference of like this to this to this. Mm -hmm. Huh. Which um, is interesting so, because yeah. dynamics are usually cardioid, right? Yes, but the but because of the way that their element works, it's um, the response to sound drops off significantly uh, the farther away you get and the more off axis you get um, because ah. they're also they're also not powered by phantom power, and so the only way they're activated is by the power transmitted by the waves. So like could you define phantom power to those listeners who don't, uh, who are just getting into uh, sound engineering? Right. When do so, you use it? When don't so you? Phantom power you only use on Halloween. Um, no. Phantom <laughs> <laughs> and phantom Friday the 13th. Yes. yes. 
So phantom power is a, is a universal power standard uh, that, that can go through an XLR cable to power a microphone. And certain types of microphones require phantom power in order to work. Um, and those are condenser microphones, active ribbon microphones, things like that. Um, and in fact, this, this particular microphone I'm talking into is, uh, is a dynamic cardioid. And so the cool thing about this is that it is a dynamic microphone. It has a cardioid pattern, and I can boost a signal with phantom power. And so it's really funny. In the, a dynamic? It, because, yeah. And, and, and I don't know why, but I can. Um, and it's very interesting because for the first, I've had this microphone for maybe three or four months, and I was not using it with phantom power. And, uh, and I would have to have my gain at 100. And it would be, and it would be, it would be nice and clean and clear. But if I had it anywhere below like 99, I couldn't hear anything on my particular wow. interface. And so I was like, okay, whatever. It's a dynamic microphone. It's a cheap interface, whatever. And um, sure. And so, but uh, but I recently just did a little bit of a an upgrade over here, uh, so I can record at a higher sample rate. And uh, and I happened to flip on the phantom power while I was doing a voiceover on this microphone, and it was like uh, peak city. You know, I sounded like Darth Vader on steroids. <laughs> emphysematic Darth Vader anyways and so I realized <laughs> I could turn on the phantom power and uh, and and so now I have the thing at maybe 50 to 60 percent on my gain knob how you're hearing me now which is hilarious and in fact let me I'm gonna it's turn the so phantom weird. Power. I'm gonna turn the phantom power off hold on okay can you hear me all right now yeah a little bit yeah I hear you and now the mic is all the way up hello oh okay oh my god <laughs> turn it up considerably might need to turn sure. it up a little bit more. Playing CSGO, like what's going on? <laughs> Might be a little bit more. How about there? Oh, yeah. All right. So, yeah, I, I had to turn that up considerably to match the same level. So I'll need to figure out exactly why that happens or works. Maybe it's a fluke. Maybe That's I broke so my microphone. Who knows? Interesting. Um, yeah, I normally, phantom power does nothing to dynamics. Right. It shouldn't matter. It's a dynamic cardioid, so there might be something different there. But... Who knows? Hmm. Anyways, but you need phantom power. And most modern microphones that you will buy, it doesn't matter if you feed them phantom power or not, even if they don't need it. Um, but older microphones, especially ribbon microphones that don't need phantom power to begin with, you can break. And so like some of the older Royer 121 models, I think the current 121 models too, if you plug them into phantom power, it'll momentarily turn into a lightsaber and then it will be a rock. Um, oh my God. A 1300 <laughs> rock. Right. So uh -oh. you want to be careful with phantom power. When you're plugging it into things, but you know the the hundred dollar ribbon microphones I've been having people buy, you can run Phantom through those. They have a protection circuit, so they won't fry it. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's weird. The manual, the manual in my uh, ribbon mic that I said is like, don't use Phantom power at all. It's gonna break things. Um, right. And even some comments have been saying that. But I mean, I've I've tried it um, because you said it won't do anything. Same with Mitch, one of the uh, other professor, uh, not professors, uh, jazz, <laughs> uh, not jazz. Dang it, trumpet players at Boise State University. Graduate. Yeah. Graduate he, uh, he has the same microphone I have and um, also runs Phantom Power and it does absolutely nothing. So it's interesting. Um, that's say newer... that because it, you know, who knows? There's also, there also exists Be careful. Yeah. 130 volt Phantom Power, which is oh, kind, wow. of, just kind of exotic. And uh, there's a number of microphones that support 130 volt Phantom Power. There's not very many. Um, but their 130 volt is great because it gives you even more headroom um, before you start getting line noise. And so they're really great for capturing a space. Um, and what so is line noise? And so line noise is when you turn up, when you turn up the gain um, or the level on a microphone, 
you're basically adding uh, electricity or energy to uh, to what's going on from the microphone, and uh, and all the things kind of work together to amplify the signal. But uh, when it gets to a certain point, you will start to hear electrical signal or electrical noise in the line when you mm. get up to a certain level. And so when we talk about headroom, we're talking about how high can you turn the microphone gain before you start to not before you start to hear things that the microphone isn't hearing. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And uh, and so with 130 volt phantom power, you can get it extremely high. And so when the Boise Baroque did its recording session um, a couple of weeks ago up at the Chateau in Eagle, in order to capture that space as accurately as possible, uh, we wanted to be able to turn our gain really high to capture absolutely everything. And so um, and so the guy who we hired to come and do that brought these really cool 130 volt phantom power stereo matched pair um, that probably that's cool cost a million dollars. Yeah, um, but go, you know, go to the Boise Brook website and take a listen, and you can hear, you know, the he did a, a fantastic job of reproducing what the space sounded like. I was uh, in on the, I was helping produce the camera crew stuff while it was being recorded in the room, sure. and I can tell you that the engineered sound sounds basically the same as it did in the room. All right. So, um, what about when you get into? Um, Say French horn. Well, not French horn. Sorry, I. It's horn. It's the hardest um, one, right? Yeah. So where the, the whole point, left. um, the uh, the, not the whole point that, there's a reason why horns their bell is behind them, um, and so they get more of the reflective sound. So how do you record horn, um, say in a studio, uh, in 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 a studio. I'm going to be bringing in Justin at some point, hopefully, if COVID allows, um, mm-hmm. to record my uh, newest uh, horn piece, Fleeting Moments. And I need to know how to record them without, re- record him without like getting, mm-hmm. uh, getting the whole uh, experience. You know what I mean? So, yeah. how, do you, uh, how do you do that? Well, so horn, horn is one of the more difficult ones. Um, but sure. briefly, briefly, I'll talk about like woodwind instruments. And so with woodwind instruments, they do have they do have a bell, like a saxophone, for example. But uh, but really, the sound comes from the whole thing because there's holes on the instrument. And so uh, when I'm recording a woodwind instrument, um, I like to pretend like the bell is the mouth or wherever the mouthpiece is, and I'll put the microphone somewhere around there. For a saxophone, I'll usually put it like in the middle of the saxophone and maybe a foot away. And I'll usually use a condenser microphone for a saxophone, and I find that's mm-hmm. good. Again, it's dependent upon the space that you're in and how that interacts with that. Um, but mm-hmm. my, the bell of a saxophone is just going to make it so you hear too much low end and not enough high end. Um, so you mm-hmm. want to kind of put it in the middle and a little bit away. Now, for the French horn, it has a bell. Um, and the sound, yes, does come out of the bell backwards. But the entire concept of what a French horn sounds like is reflected sound. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, the French horn, no part of a French horn is direct in terms of the way, you know, if we were to describe what are the characteristics of a horn sound, we would talk about like, you know, it sounds it sounds very noble and the uh, it has a lot of mid mid and low end sounds and there's not a whole lot of harshness in the way it plays and it has very nice connections between notes and when it articulates it's never harsh um, and those are all uh-huh. kind of things we would talk about with a French horn now, now if you put your microphone behind the bell of a French horn you're gonna it's basically gonna sound like a frumpy trumpet um, and the <laughs> French horn player is not gonna like that and it's not gonna sound like a French horn either very well mm-hmm. it's just gonna sound like a dirty trumpet and um, and so, but if you put the microphone in front of a French horn player, oftentimes you'll lose clarity of attack and you'll also lose the color of the sound because again, a French horn has even more change in color when they, when they play, um, when they play loud versus soft. And they also, French horn players can play very low and very mid and things like that. Uh, so with a French horn player, I, I will usually put one in front of them and I'll probably put one behind them too, or best case scenario, 
I'll put them in a space where their bell can face something that's pretty reflective, and then the mic will be in front of them. Mm -hmm. And so in my space, if I was going to record a French horn player in here, I would probably have, let's see here. Yeah, I would probably back them up and make it so their bell is facing that closet door and, uh, and then put the microphone maybe a foot in front of them and see if I can make that work. Um, in my space, since my ceiling is flat, I also might put the microphone above them and point it down a little bit. That might be You a said good using a condenser or a ribbon? I would try, I would use a condenser. Um, if you're mm -hmm. hearing a lot of room noise um, or a lot of wet, uh, or any wetness in your room, you can switch over to the ribbon. Something else you can do is put the ribbon behind them like it was a trombone and the condenser in front of them. Um, and you could try to mix those two sounds together. Um, sometimes mm. I, can work. I haven't really figured out a really great way because I don't live with a horn player, but I do have one who I work with in my organization and we've been kind of troubleshooting stuff. But, you know, the next time I see him, I'm just gonna be like, all right, we're going to spend today figuring out how to record horn. <laughs> right what on, if, right on. What if you had like a ribbon mic with the uh, sound proofing on one side um, and you put that against the uh, reflective wall that you're trying to um, that you're backing the horn player up against. You could do that. I mean, it's. I think with the horn, it's really about um, you got to capture you got to capture what it sounds like in the space without the space being wet. Is the Interesting. key right? That's because okay, yeah. horn is not a direct not a directional instrument. So maybe even like you know something else I would try is I would put a condenser or a ribbon. Um, you know, if I'm if I'm holding the horn, I would put it to my right side and pretty close to me, like almost as close as I'm talking to the microphone now, but sort of pointed at the horn and see and see mm. what kind of a sound it would make there. Just basically getting uh, getting away from the axis of the bell um, and trying whatever I can do away from the axis of the bell and then seeing what I can do with the room I'm in to make it so that it reflects a little bit, just a little bit. Like it only reflects off the one wall, but not off the others. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. I've put so, a classroom desk behind a horn before. What did like that you do? You stack two desks sideways so that the surface of the desk is facing the bell of the horn, put it a couple of feet behind the horn player, and then did a stereo recording in a classroom, and that amplified the horn enough. Oh, huh. perfect. Right on. Yeah, oftentimes they have like a polycarbonate or a black um, wood um, thing behind them that reflects the sound um, if the uh, sound gets swallowed up by, say, the percussion or the trumpets behind them. Um, right. I've seen symphonic winds do that a couple times, um, but not every single time. Mm -hmm. So moving instruments, what about flute? Um, mm -hmm. I've heard that you want to have the microphone um, up against uh, where the mouth is rather than towards the end where the, uh, uh, not, not the bell, but the end hole. Mm -hmm. um, so wouldn't the air coming uh, that they're blowing, wouldn't that cause problems with the microphone and produce the uh, sound? Yep. So that's why you want, so you can get windshields on microphones or like a pop filter like you have can help reduce yeah. those, those plosives and wind sounds. Um, for a flute, to be perfectly honest, I would probably use a dynamic or a ribbon microphone anyways. Um, mm -hmm. And that would reduce some of those things. Although you don't want to blow on a ribbon because then it'll thump. Anyone who's played direct mm -hmm. onto a ribbon with a harmon mute will figure that one out. Um, but <laughs> being a little bit above them so that their airstream isn't quite going at the microphone or a little bit more in the middle, so it's slightly off axis, because you know the, the sound on the flute does come from the whole instrument, even though the mouthpiece is right there. So again, it's, it would yeah. just be you know experiment. Um, but so I actually I have a meeting, another meeting that's going on at the moment, and so I think um, let's do maybe like one or two more questions, and then maybe I can come back another time because I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of people commenting things. They'd, oh they'd, yeah. Like, what did he say? Um, I don't. So um, I, I, don't I have, have one. Anything. 
how drastically does your setup change between genres? Like, let's say you play lead oh. trumpet or you record lead trumpet one time and then the next day you record like a, a pop pop kind of uh, trumpet part. How drastically does your setup change and do you use different mics for that? So the the big answer is no and no. Um, and so, I yeah, I have my setup to try to record as cleanly and accurately as possible whatever I'm doing. And depending upon what, what the genre is, I will change my instrument or my mouthpiece or my approach. And if I have other things that I'm playing with, like if I'm not playing lead trumpet, playing fourth trumpet, and they've sent me what the lead trumpet did, that's going to inform how I sound. And it's very rare that I will change the microphone I'm using or the microphone placement in order to change my sound up because I've kind of set that up to get a really good, dry, recorded, high-quality recorded sound. Um, the only exception to that would probably be if I was recording a lot of uh, like cornet or flugelhorn or something like that, um, I might move to the dynamic microphone that I have rather than my ribbon microphone. Um, but I think, you know, mm -hmm. I think the last time I did flugel, actually the most recent um, premiere that actually released today through the Brass Institutes of Virginia, I play a little bit of flugelhorn at the end and I played it on the dynamic microphone, but everything else I do is on that ribbon. Right on. Okay, cool. Yeah. So just having some tools that are ready for the job. If I was recording classical music, um, again, it would also depend on what everyone else is doing and what the vibe of the recording session is. Um, mm -hmm. Where the last two pieces we're doing for Brass Institutes are classical symphonic. We're doing Frank DeKelly's Blue Shades and we're doing Bernstein's Profanation. Um, and those are both very classical, but I'm still recording it mm -hmm. as if it was a pop thing because I'm changing the sound afterwards when I mix. Okay, yeah. Cool. Um, I don't have any more questions on my end. Um, that was a good question, Adrian. So um, you probably have to get going to your meeting. Um, thank you so much for being on, and uh, well, I hope you, uh, uh, I hope you come back for us to ask more questions um, because we yeah. will definitely have some more. Um, I'd be happy to come back. Uh, thanks for putting this all together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so anyway, thank you for listening. Take care and take note.